0: I want to start today by asking you all a question. When you think of God, what do you see? When you think of God, what do you see? Because I'm certain that each and every one of us has a certain image of God, a certain image of a physical form, of a certain image of characteristics and attributes, and we all probably in some finite way could describe God. Not very well, but we could try. I wonder if you could ask people in this country or people around the world the same questions. How many different answers would you get when you say, when you think about God, what do you see? Some would probably say they see a God who accepts everyone just the way they are and never bothers to try to change them. Some would say this is a God who gives everything and never expects anything in return. Perhaps people would say, this is a God who honors all religions and sees one way to him just as good as another. Or maybe you say, I see a God that's so sweet that eventually he's going to let everyone into heaven. Perhaps some of you see a mean old God, one who hates not only sins but doesn't think much of the sinners either, always trying to catch us and doing something wrong. And if that particular God invites you to a barbecue, you should be aware because you might be the one on the grill. Then there's the good old boy God. He's my buddy. He's my homeboy. He's always cool. He loves me. We chill out together. He's my buddy God. Then there's the bellhop God. God's only job, God's only concern is that he gives me what I want when I want it, and the way I want it. I'm not here to serve him. He's here to serve me. You know, when things are right, we're tight. And when things are wrong, well, we're not so tight. And then my favorite is the whatever God. He made us just the way we are. So there's no real thing such as right and wrong. If it feels good, you do it. In fact, God's not really concerned He looks down upon the world and says, whatever. Now, I hope none of you have visions of God that way, because if there is, there's a Methodist 101 class starting immediately after the service. But I'll bet you that there are people that look at God in many of the same ways. And maybe those are all great ways. Those are visions that might be right on target except for one very important fact. God is a holy God. We live in a country and in a world where we have a moral crisis that continues to slip down a slippery slope each and every day. And I believe that perhaps one of the greatest causes of that moral, ca- moral chaos is the fact that we have lost the vision of the holiness of God. We have lost the vision of the holiness of God. In the world, in the country, even in the church, God is a holy God. David Wells in his great book, No Place for Truth, says these words. He says, the holiness of God is the very cornerstone of Christian faith. It is the foundation of our reality. Knowing that God is holy is key to knowing life, to knowing Christ as He truly is, to know why Christ, why Christ came and how life is going to end. A holy God has been replaced in our world by a God who is slick and slack, writes David, whose moral purposes turn out to be more like fatherly advice that we can either disregard or simply negotiate as we see fit. You can believe whatever you want. I think more than anything else in the world, we need to see God, not as we think God is, but how God really is. We need to see God the same way Isaiah saw God, the way he really is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And once you've seen him that way, you can never go back. You are changed forever when you've seen a holy God. So the first thing we need to learn today is we need to see God as he really is, just like Isaiah did. And when he writes this, he says, this happened in the year, what does he say, in the year that King Uzziah died. You may say, well, what's so important about the, king, the year that King Uzziah died? Well, the King Uzziah it was pretty important. But it's important to Isaiah because he remembers the time, the place, where his life was changed. It was so monumental to him that he remembered all the little details that this is what happened. This is the point in my life that things really changed, that things went in a different direction. Uzziah had been a king, and he'd had a wonderful, wonderful kingship. He had been successful throughout all of Judah. He had strengthened the defense of Jerusalem. He had turned it into a fortified city, was able to fend off enemies. He had brought economic prosperity and God had favored the land with peace and prosperity and security. But now King Uzziah had died. And this was a time when the country became vulnerable because those on the outside looking in said, This great king has died. Now we can run in there. We can take it over. We can make it what we want to. And that's exactly what the Assyrian nation was going to do. And people were afraid. People were scared to death. Their popular, wonderful, magnificent king had died. And under these circumstances, Isaiah is in the temple. He is praying, and he sees something that no one else in all of history has ever seen. He sees the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords, not on an earthly throne, but on an eternal divine throne. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. There are two kings in these verses. One is an earthly king one is a divine king. One is a king who died and one is a king who can never die. One is a mortal king and one is an immortal king. And what God is trying to remind Isaiah as he always reminds us is that there's only one king That is indispensable. There is only one that cannot die. And that is the most important king. That's the one you need to follow. That's the one you need to believe in. That's where you need to place your trust. Isaiah saw a God that we all need to see. We need to see this God who is in complete control on his throne. I think when we think about that, it helps us in the world in which we live. I think it's a wonderful example for our world leaders, whether they're around the globe or whether they're in this country. It doesn't make any difference who's in the White House, who the Senate Majority Leader is, or who the Speaker of the House is. The only thing that matters is who's on the throne. That's the one you follow, that's the one you put your faith in, that's the one that is in complete and total control, the one on the throne. We may face terrorist attacks. We may continue to see our culture decline. We may have an ever-increasing mountain of debt. We may even have spiritual hostility in this country, trials and tribulations. But as long as God is on his throne, there's a sovereign God. That's the one who's in control. That's the one we follow. Children, unfortunately, are still going to be shot in school. Doctors are still going to prescribe that you have cancer. And your boss is still going to come and say, you're fired. But the God who is high and lifted up, the holy God, is the one that is still in control. He knows exactly what he is doing. And so Isaiah continues with his story. And now we look at the seraphim. Each had six wings Two covering face, two covering feet, two with which they flew. And here's what they say Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of your glory. I'm not exaggerating when I say this is probably the most important phrase in all of the Bible, the one we need to take home. It makes us understand what God is really about. We see God as he really is. Those angelic creatures, those seraphim, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. That's who God is. Holy. It's the adjective used more than any other adjective throughout the Old Testament to define and show God. The chief attribute of our Father is not mercy or grace or love or compassion or power or knowledge. The chief attribute of our God is Holiness, holy, holy, holy comes from the Hebrew word that means to separate, to cut apart, something that is completely and totally separate from anything and everything else. In other words, God is a cut above us. God is an eternal cut above us. He is far different, so far apart that every creature can only worship him by saying, holy, holy. Holy are you. He is one of a kind. He cannot be compared to anything or anyone else. There is no one and nothing like him. And unless we can see him that way, unless we can see him differently, unless we can relate to him differently, we don't have the right viewpoint of God. Why do you think the word holy is repeated three times there? Is it from my stole? I don't think so. Is it the opening lyrics of your song today? Yeah, it is. But that's not why it's repeated. In the English language, when we want to emphasize something, we'll put it in bold print. We'll italicize it. We'll underline it. We'll even put quotes around it. But in Jewish poetry, they didn't do that. The Jewish people emphasize something. They use the method of repetition When something was mentioned three times, it was elevated to the greatest degree with the greatest amount of importance. Only once, only once in the entire Bible is God elevated to the third degree. Only once is the character trait of God mentioned three times in succession. You just read it. The trait is not love, mercy, grace, or justice. The trait is who exactly God is. Holy, holy. Holy. And if you don't see God as holy, you've got the wrong view of God. Anyone who doesn't see God as holy has got the wrong view of God. It depends on how we relate to God with how we see God. So... What we are supposed to do is see God as he really is, which brings us to the next point that Isaiah gives us. When we see God as he really is, when we see a holy God, we see ourselves. At the total opposite end, we see ourselves as we really are, ugly, sinful, and broken. And Isaiah gets a real glimpse of himself after he sees God. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah had seen the very holiness of God, and now he sees all of his sinfulness, all of his ugliness, all of his brokenness. Until you see God as he really is, you can never see yourself as you really are. Until you see God as he really is, you can never see yourself as you really are. That's probably one of the biggest problems we have. I can tell you that on my own spiritual journey, the more I know of God, the less I think of me. The more I know of God, the less I think of me. Most of us live at extremes. We're either full of God and absolutely no self, or we're full of self and absolutely no God. We very seldom drive in the middle of the road. Did you know out there right now, sitting with you, are three people all over, three people, every seat. One person is the person you hope you are. The other person is the person that people think you are. And the third person is the person God knows you are. So look at it this way. we got 600 people in this chapel, this congregation today. 600 people. The one who hope they are, the people who think they are, and God who knows you are. That's how many are out there. You know, there was a time when Isaiah thought he was a great prophet, and everybody around him looked at him with unquestioned integrity and righteousness and virtue. But he got just one glimpse of a holy God. And he sees all the dirtiness and all the guilt in his life. And at that moment he cries out, I'm undone. I'm undone. And here we have a beautiful moment of atonement. When the one seraphim flies to him with a burning coal and touches his lips and says, your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. What a beautiful illustration of God's truth in our life. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Isaiah hates what he sees in himself. God hates it even more. But he loves Isaiah so much as he loves us that his hatred of sin is cleansed and Isaiah is forgiven. The one thing you have to remember is that in order for your relationship with God to be real, you have to see him as he really is, and you have to see yourself as you really are. And then what happens? When those two things happen, what happens next? Then you get to see everybody else as they really are. Incidentally, those fingers point both ways, so I'm not just pointing at you. Thumbs back to me. You see God as he really is, you see yourself as you really are, then you see everybody else as they really are. And you see the brokenness and the need that is so prevalent in our world and in our culture. Once you see God as He really is, you want to surrender everything to Him. You want to respond. What does He say? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. The measure of the depth of our relationship with God is surrender the measure of the depth of our relationship with God is surrender when you are deeper in your relationship with God you have a greater sense of surrender to Him whatever He asks, you'll do no questions asked because God is a holy God Isaiah didn't say what most people say God says, who are we going to send? And you say, here I am, send Randall. Here I am, send Jim. Here I am, send Sean. Here I am, send somebody else. How often do we do that? How often are we tempted to do that? If we don't do that, then we do the other thing. We start asking God's questions. Who am I going to send? And we respond, well, that all depends on where you want me to go. Well, Lord, that all depends on what you want me to do. Isaiah answered before the ink on the contract was even dried. He said, send me. Take very careful attention of what he says, too. He says, here am I. There's a crucial difference between saying, here am I, and here I am. If you simply say, here I am, that's a geographical location. Here I am. But when you say, here am I, what he's saying to God is, here am I. Don't look anyplace else. Don't ask anyone else. Send me. I'm ready. No questions asked. Here am I. Send me. I tell you, today more than anything else, God can use any of us at any time, in any place, if we'll just simply say, here I am, send me, send me. You know, we have a group of care ministers that Sean and the nurture team have put together, a wonderful outreach, trying to reach to people who are housebound, homebound, or in the nursing home. And we have a set of three that kind of lead that whole uh, whole contingent. Susanna Condick, she's over there. There she is. Bob Rollins over there. Deidre Breidenbach. And we were at the morning point on Friday. First time over there to go over there and to worship and have fellowship with, with uh, our folks. And we even had some Baptists there too. We're trying to bring them in from the dark side. So that's all right. That's good. Remember, I was, I was raised Baptist, so I get to say that. But it was a good time. It was a great time. Wonderful fellowship. We had communion. Had a little meditation. It was great. But I'm reminded of this story, a true story, about a pastor who had a deacon in his church. And the deacon kept trying to understand what, what he was going to do. He was struggling with the Holy Spirit on saying, you know, I don't know. Here I am. Here I am. Uh, Here am I. That's what I should say. Here am I. Send me, but I don't know what I'm doing. pastor kept encouraging him, and finally, this deacon said, you know what I can do? I can take the youth group over to the nursing home once a month and do a worship service for them. So he took the youth group over there, but he still was not engaged. Matter of fact, he stood against the back wall. While the youth are out there, you know, rolling people back and forth in their wheelchairs and having fun, giving out donuts. Right, Bob? Until one little old man wheeled his wheelchair up to the deacon and turned it around and parked it next to him next to the wall and reached out and took his hand. And he stayed there hand in hand for the entire time. And this started happening month after month after month. The youth would come, but this little man would take his wheelchair and wheel it right over next to the wall to the deacon, and he'd reach up, and he'd grab his hand and hold it. This happened for several months until one Sunday they came, and the little old man wasn't there. And the deacon asked the head nurse what happened, and sadly she said, he's dying. He's down in his room. And you might want to go down there, but I don't think he'll hear you. He's unconscious. So the deacon walked down the hall, went into the room. And if any of you have ever been in those rooms, it's, it's dark. And there were umpteen tubes and machines clinking and clanking away. And he went over to the bedside. And as the Spirit led him, he reached down and he held the old man's hand and prayed. And he prayed, and he prayed, and then when he got to the end of his prayer and said, Amen, the old man squeezed his hand. And the deacon started to cry. And he turned, and as he's exiting the room, he runs into the head nurse, and she tells him, He's been waiting for you. The deacon says, what do you mean? He's been waiting for you. He wanted to hold the hand of Jesus. The deacon said, I'm not Jesus. And they said, I know that. And I've told him when he dies, he's going to be able to hold Jesus' hand. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. Every month, I hold Jesus' hand. And I just want to hold it one more time before I die. None of us know what tomorrow or next week or next year hold for us. I don't know how many of us are going to see burning bushes or six-winged seraphim, probably few of us. But God is calling us to get it right. To see him as he really is, a holy God. To see ourselves as we really are in our brokenness and our sinfulness. And to see others as they really are in their need and in their hurt. We have the opportunity to get it right. But when God calls out, Whom shall I send? What are you going to respond? What are you going to say? Would you bow your heads with me, please?